As I said, we've been here, we've been studying Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's this Old Testament book where I find so many parallels to our circumstance today. And so our, our thought to get us started today is this idea that when your fears are actually realized. If you feared something, and then you go investigate, and then, oh yeah, that actually was what I feared, or it was worse than I feared. I'll give you an example, a practical example. When Heather and I, we, we, our first home was a Rambler just right up the street here on Sterling Drive, 675 Sterling Drive. It was a great Rambler. It was built in 1964. When we moved in, everything had to be painted and cleansed. And, and uh, so it was a great house. We were there almost 10 years. But I remember early on, at some point, the previous homeowner had converted the house from electric baseboard heat to a gas furnace. And so, and, and we had this back bedroom, and I can't remember if Lauren was already born or coming, and it was just a cold bedroom. It was just cold. And I thought, well, maybe something has happened, and the, the furnace tube that feeds that back room has fallen off or disconnected or become plugged. Something's wrong. The heat's not getting to that room. So I crawl under the crawl space, which is not pleasant. Nobody wants to do. And this was a particularly tight crawl space. There were sections where I was chest on the ground and my back was touching insulation, okay? And uh, not where I like to be. I'm not claustrophobic, but I didn't really care for it. So I go over and sure enough, there's disconnected one of the little soft tubes that takes the heat to the bedroom. So oh, I'll fix that. But upon further investigation... Yeah, it was way worse than I thought. Because every rat in Bellingham got the word that I was heating my crawl space, and they moved in. And so they had got up into the insulation, they had pulled it down, they got into the heat system, and then I later learned that their droppings and other items are actually toxic to breathe. So it was terrible. I hired a company to come in and fix it. The guy lasted half a day, said he threw up, and left the job. And I was like, well, 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 now what, you know? So I was like, well, you're the homeowner, bucko. So fortunately, another guy knew, was in the industry, said, I'll help you. So we had to take it all out, all, because everything was soiled with that stuff. All the, and so we had to take all the ducting out, all the visqueen out. And so if, once you take the visqueen out, then you're laying in mud. So I'm laying in mud, working in this little tiny space. And eventually, you know, we put in all new Visqueen, so it was a slightly happier place, an all new heat system, and Lauren's bedroom was warm, and she's alive today, so it worked out. But it was horrible, so much so that when we bought our current house, it does not have a crawl space. It's a full basement, done with crawl spaces, don't want to go in there again. I know basements can leak and have their own problems, but I don't have a crawl space anymore. But the point was... <laughs> I thought something was wrong. I thought something might be wrong. I got underneath there, and it was way worse than I could have ever imagined. It was way worse. I'm sparing you details, actually. So, um, and sometimes that happens. You think something might be up, you check on it, it's worse. That's actually what we're going to see with Ezra today. Right? We've been following this book of the Bible. If you're just jumping in today, I'll quickly run through the, the time in history. But God's people, living in Judah and Jerusalem... A series of campaigns from Babylon comes in, and in 587 B.C., Babylon destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And this was actually a punishment from God for their faithlessness and their idolatry. So we've seen that. They exile people, but in 538 B.C., 
A new king comes in and God, working through him, says, you can go back and rebuild the temple. You can go back and reestablish that center of worship. So they do. We've been following that story. It's finished in 518 BC. And then a whole bunch of years goes by. There's kind of a jump in our book. And we started this last week that Ezra in chapter 7 said, I'm going to go check on the people. So we're all the way down to 458 BC. And Ezra says, I'm going to go check not on the construction project. I'm going to go check on the spiritual state of the people living there. They've gone back. They've built a temple. Decades have gone by. How are they doing with their faith? Remember, he was an expert studier of the word, of the law, the scriptures. So he goes back, and Ezra's fears are realized. He might have had a sense. Are they staying on track? Are they following the law? Are they obeying God? I'm going to go check. And when he gets there, oh yeah, it's way worse than he thought. It's way worse than he thought. So that's what we're going to look at today in 9 and 10. So here's our main point. Let nothing come between you and God. Let nothing come between you and and God. Because we're going to see some things came between this people and God, and then we're going to make some modern-day applications. Let nothing come. So the first thing we're going to see is he finds a breach of faith, a breach, an opening, a gap. Something's broken. So let's look in verses, just start here in 1 and 2, Ezra 9, 1 and 2. So after these things have been done, those are the things we read about last week. Remember, he was bringing money and and establishing we're going to do all this for the temple worship. So after he distributed all that, the officials approached me. So this is Ezra, first person, and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost." So we've talked about this throughout this letter. It can easily look like on the surface this is a racial thing. We don't want to mix the race. But it's not. He said the reason they didn't want to mix, he said it in there because of the abominations of those people groups. Their detestable practices. So the idea is if you marry in, you are inviting those practices. I'm going to talk about them a little bit today more specifically. But that's the issue. You've married in, and so you've invited and encouraged the worship of all those nations I just read. And he said they're abominations, detestable, things that God hates. He's saying you've just brought it right back in. And what did it say? What was the worst part? The leaders were the worst. Did you see that? Our chief men, our leaders are setting the example. Our leaders are the ones doing the wrong thing most. So that's what he comes to find. He thought, well, let's see if they're staying on track. Oh, no, we're not staying on track. Oh, no, far worse. Our leaders are setting the tone for disobeying God. So let's jump back in. We're going to go, we're going we're gonna to hit the rest of this chapter. I'm going to stop at some moments. But I want you to see his response, and then we're going to see what he does about it. So we're in 9, chapter 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. 
Now, that's some grief. I've seen some people upset. I've seen some people mad. I've never, like, pulled my own hair out in anger or my own beard out in anger. This is, he's just appalled. He's shocked. He's like, are you kidding me? Why is he appalled? He's going to talk about it. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. He just didn't even know what to do. He just sat there for hours just in utter shock and horror. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, so he turns to prayer. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. He's like, I'm embarrassed to come pray right now. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, are, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. So he's saying the very reason that Babylon conquered us, the very reason we were plundered, the very reason we went into exile was because we rebelled against you. That's the reason we're in all this trouble. Right? He's like, that's, that's how we got in this mess, and now here we're doing it again. Verse 8, but now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Saying, we've been receiving your grace. You're letting us return. You're letting the temple be built. You're letting us worship you again. They're not a free nation. They're not a sovereign nation. They're under the, under the burden of Persia. They're still, but he's allow your worship. He doesn't allow them to be a sovereign nation again. He's saying, you have been gracious. You have blessed us. You have answered our prayer. And then we went right back to the very thing that got us in trouble in the first place. So here we are, verse 9. He says, for we are slaves. We're under another yoke. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of It is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. So when they first got there, that was the whole reason God gave it to them. Those other peoples were doing horrible things, and he said, I'm done with that. I'm giving you the land. This is verse 12. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with, the, intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. 
Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. First of all, he gives you a great example of just owning it. He doesn't give any excuses. He doesn't say they are offering super good dowries for marrying them and we just had to take the deal. He just says, we did terrible in the past. We received our punishment. You've been gracious again because God is gracious and we did it again and we just own it. We're guilty. You should wipe us out. What do we do? And I want to deal with this question. Some of you might go like, what, what's, what's the big deal? Right? I mean, people intermarry all over the world today with different, with different faith backgrounds. Like, what, what are we talking about here? Can't it work out? Why is it, such, why is it such a horrible thing? Why has God got this tight restriction on them? What's the big deal if they marry someone else? What's the big deal? So I want to show you three places of what the big deal is, of why he said don't do it. Okay? First one's in Hosea 4.12. This is my people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. He's talking about their worshiping idols. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the top of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. So they go up and worship in hills and mountains. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. It's not just they go to some other temple across town, right? They go and there are sexual, adulterous, prostitution rites going on. That's the worship, right? I think that's, it's, it's, that's why I said this is detestable. This is abominable. You're not doing this. You're not going to join that worship because that's what is involved. Next one's in Deuteronomy 8. It says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. I'm going to come back to that one. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So it's full of witchcraft and sorcery. And if you think that's not real, I had two teenage girls come into my office a few years ago. And they said, we got invited to blah, 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 something with this lady. I don't know what it was. And she said, we thought it was some kind of moon whatever. They thought it was no big deal. And they were freaked out. She said, it changed voices. It got really scary. There was demonic presence. It's no joke. It's no cultural festivity, right? Some of the ones, some of the worship then and even now is involving the invoking of demons, of witchcraft. That's what's going on. He's like, I don't want you into that, right? Then this last one in Jeremiah, they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Saying, I wouldn't even think to tell you to do that. It wouldn't even enter my mind. And that's what they're doing. And that's what Israel ended up doing. So what's the big deal? <laughs> Adulterous, demonic, murderous worship. That's the big deal. And you think, well, they didn't have to do it. I'm just telling you, when you marry, when you yoke to something, it gets a little bit 
you don't always get to choose. You go over to your in-law's house for dinner, and Uncle Leroy starts praying to dead uncle, great uncle, whatever, and he's invoking a dead being, and you're like, whoa, I just came over for Thanksgiving. This is what's going on here. You can't quite separate from it when you're married into it. You can't quite separate from these practices and the evil and the generations. And he's saying, so don't marry into it. Don't, it's not just that they went to some other building and sang different songs. The worship was adulterous, demonic, murderous. God's saying, don't, don't, don't even touch it. That's why, that's why Ezra rips his beard out, right? He's like, oh. So that's why the point is let nothing come between you and God. Right? They come I've been gracious, I've given you a land, I'm blessing you, the, the foreign king's paying for it. Oh, but this person looks good, and this, well, maybe that religion's not so bad, and suddenly there's a breach. So then there's an extreme response, and this is where it gets a little bit hard. Okay, a lot hard. <laughs> a lot hard. What does he tell them to do? Okay, for chapter 10. Chapter 10, what does he tell them to do? Ezra, while Ezra prayed... And made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So they were catching on like, we're in trouble. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Like, yeah, we did it. We know it. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as been said, so they took the oath. So the solution is, well, you've got to send them all away. You've got to divorce them. Whoa. So, verse 6, Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Elishab, Rashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. So he's, he's broken here. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. That's what's called a mandatory meeting. Right? You ever hear those? Okay. You're coming or we're throwing your stuff out. Right? Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. So they get the message, like, all right, we better go. It was the ninth month and the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter... And because of the heavy rain. They actually met in Bellingham. I don't know if you saw that. So, And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do of you as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or two. He's like, this is going to be a big job. I lost my place. Okay, got it. For we have greatly transgressed in the matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let 
And all our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jazeah, the son of Tikva, opposed this. So a couple of people are like, we don't like this plan. And Meshulam and Shabbatai the Levite supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the father's houses, according to the father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. We'll just stop there because then actually list their names. It's not why you want to be in the Bible, but anyway. So that was the plan. They said, you have to send them away. They said, okay, we'll go home, send everyone in each village. We're going to do a research. We're going to come meet with the elders. We're going to talk it through, figure it out. And that's what they did. Is this a huge contradiction? So I'm feeling that like, wait, wait, you just send them away? You just divorce them? The very last, bottom of the very last verse, I didn't get there because of all the names. The end of 44, some of them had even born children. You just send the kids away, and now they don't have a dad, and what's that? How's that solving the problem? Isn't that a worse problem? Then, you come into the New Testament, we've got passages like this that talk about believers marrying unbelievers. To the rest, I say, this is 7.12, Not I, the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Right? He's saying, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. He's saying, don't do it unless they want to go. Right? That's the last part. If they want to go, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. They're not enslaved. God's called you to peace. Right? But if, how do you know whether you save them? So, so if they want to leave, you can let them go. So that's kind of a challenge, huh? This is where I'm like, whoa, why did I pick this passage? The question I wonder is, could there have been a way through, right? Because it seems like the New Testament, Paul's saying, no, if you want to stay married, they stay. If they want to leave, they can leave. But don't make it happen. It's the old two wrongs don't make a right. Shouldn't have married him in the first place. But now divorcing him doesn't help. Or maybe you came to Christ later and the one spouse didn't. So do we add more challenge to this? So the question I have is maybe in the moment, could the foreign wives in Ezra's day have turned to God? Could they have said, I renounce all the other gods, I renounce the Baals, I renounce the child sacrifice, I'm not going to call. Could they have just totally renounced it? Because we actually have precedent for that in the Old Testament. We have precedence of that in the book of Ruth. You know the story of Ruth, there's a woman named Naomi, and She's married, has two sons, and there's hardship in Israel, so they go to the land of Moab, and the two sons marry Moabite women, and then Naomi's husband dies, and the two sons die. It's a very tragic opening chapter to Ruth. Uh, and so she says, you, I'm going to go back to Israel. You ladies, just stay here. You go back home. You find new spouses. We see that in Ruth one twelve. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I, and should I say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? She's like, I can't give you any more kids. I got no more sons coming for you. So would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. Oh, went too fast. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. She's like, just go live your life. 
Leave me, go get married again, live your life. It says, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, sort of a goodbye kiss. I'm Okay, I'll go home. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, catch this, and to her gods. Did you catch that? One of the things you have to understand in the scriptures is these gods and the beliefs were rooted in the people, in the nation. So when she said she'd left her gods and was with them, and she's going to go back to her people and the worship of that place, we should just return. But here's what Ruth says. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people and your God my God, right? So there's precedence for people renouncing. I'm not going to follow the gods of my land and my people and my place. I'm going to renounce and follow Yahweh. And there's, I didn't put them all in here, but there's ways to do it. So I'm just wondering if we, I'm just kind of a little bit stuck, right? Well, one passage says don't do it. Another passage, they send them away. I'm just wondering if they didn't, if they refused. The little piece of information we have is in Ezra 10, 16, Remember, they said, we can't solve this today. He's like, all right, we'll appoint some people to go. They, they did. The priest selected men. All right, you're going to go research this. And then it says, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. So it wasn't just this snap decision. They went town by town, village by village. They called them up. So my thought is, they refused. Like, no, I'm not renouncing that. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, well, you got to go. I don't have that written, so you could say you're out to lunch and you're weak and you know what you're talking about. But that's the way I'm going to see it is going through. That they examined it, and the foreign ladies were like, we're not doing that. We're not renouncing our gods. We're not turning away. And so they said, then we can't have this. Because, <laughs> what did I say? The, it's horrible, right? The worship is horrible. And so this, I mean, this is where we're going to turn to kind of get to how this makes sense to us. There was an extreme response because it's an extreme risk. I, lo- I showed you the worship. I showed you it involved sorcery and adultery and even murder and child sacrifice. But that's not even all of the risk. There's multiple passages that talk like this in the Old Testament. I'm just going to show you one in Psalms. Psalm 115 is talking about what happens when you worship foreign gods and their idols. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them... Become like them, so do all who trust in them. So there's these idols, right? And I firmly believe the Bible is clear that the idols, statues are nothing, but there are spiritual forces behind them. But the statues, the wood, they're nothing, right? But this last part is saying if you worship them, you become like them. I've got a book on my shelf called We Become What We Worship by a guy called Beale. And he brings this up, and he also links it. I don't have time to show you all this. Links it to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has to announce to the people, be ever hearing, 
but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. It's the same judgment. So here's what he says. What God's people had revered in Isaiah's time, they had become like. Like They were worshiping the idols. And this likeness was spiritually destructive to them. This is an ironic punishment, since the people thought that their worship of the idols would lead to enhanced life and prosperity. But in reality, it resulted in further deterioration of their spiritual life and ultimately their material prosperity. This is an expression of that well-known proverbial principle that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, 12, their punishment was ironically patterned after their sin. So you like idols? Are you like idols? If so, then you are going to become like your idols, and this likeness will devastate you. The idol worship promised something, right? This is going to make us prosperous. Or entering into those marriages. I love this person. It's going to be wonderful, and our life's going to be great together. And he's saying, so as they pursued whatever those idols would offer them, prosperity, hope, peace, crops, wealth, whatever, you became spiritually deadened. The further you went away from worship of true God, the less you were able to turn back. That's the principle, right? If you worship those things who have no mouth, nose, face, feet, eventually you become like them and that you lose the ability to hear from God. You become spiritually dead. It's the same thing that happens in Romans 1, right? He gives your heart over. Your foolish heart is darkened. You become unable to hear the truth. That's the big deal. That's why it's extreme. He's saying if you go down the road of marrying into these things and following their gods and whatever you're seeking in so doing, you put yourself in position to become spiritually deadened and unable to respond to God. That's the danger. You say, yeah, but I'm not worshiping idols. I got no statues in my house. This is thousands of years ago. What are we talking about here in theoretical Ezra world? Like, come on, I'm not doing that. I'm not joining crazy religions. I'm not sacrificing chickens on my back porch. Like, I'm not doing any of this. Does this relate at all? And so here's what I I want us to really realize The things that led them to that worship was seeking solutions to life. How do my crops grow? How do I find love? Who am I? How do I prosper? How do I keep the evil away? A lot of their rituals had to do with keeping evil spirits away. They were seeking solutions. They were seeking bad solutions, which ended up, as we've just discovered, enslaved them. I want to talk about one today where people are seeking solutions to life, They're looking for answers out there, and the answers they're finding are harming them. But it's a very sensitive topic, so I want to address it very sensitively and very carefully. And it's this whole topic of gender dysphoria. So I don't want anybody to hear, I'm not slamming today, I want to deal with this maturely. Gender dysphoria is the feeling people have that something's wrong. Dysphoria is the opposite of euphoria. Euphoria is I'm joyful. I'm happy, life is good, dysphoria, I'm sad, I'm depressed, life is bad. When you put the word gender in front of it, it means the reason I'm feeling bad and awful and icky is because I feel that my gender is wrong. That's how I feel. So I acknowledge, I want to acknowledge there may be people in this room that feel that way. And so I want you to know I'm glad you're here, and I want you to be seeking God in this conversation. This is not a slam you, slam trans. I want to have a mature conversation, and it fits into this. So what they're finding, and I'm going to show you in an article, 
is that many people, there's this whole thing called a rapid onset gender dysphoria. It means you suddenly feel that way. And then a number of people are doing what's called detransitioning. Like I switched the other gender and I've come back. So they're saying, well, why did you switch and why did you come back and what can we learn? So I'm going to show you. This is in an article I found from Psychology Today. This has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the Bible. Well, everything ultimately does, but the article was not written from a Christian perspective, a biblical perspective. It's written by a guy called David Luden. Why some trans persons decide to detransition. Best practices are still evolving. So, they say, in this thing, he, he cites this Lisa Littman quite a bit. He says, medical researcher Lisa Littman points out in a series of articles the demographics of late-onset gender dysphoria have changed. So that means some people feel like it, they say, since I was three years old, I felt like I was the wrong. But others find it in their teens or 20s. That's the difference there. Late gender dysphoria have changed significantly since the turn of the 21st century. Specifically, the number of gender dysphoria cases has increased dramatically. Furthermore, the vast majority of those now reporting late-onset gender dysphoria these days are adolescent or young adult women. So, there are two... So, he's going to offer... Well, why is that? They're going to offer some ideas. There are two explanations for the shifting landscape of gender dysphoria, both of which involve the Internet. One explanation is that these young women now have access to information that can help them make sense of their psychological struggles surrounding sex and gender. In other words, more young women are now coming out as trans because they have a better understanding of their condition and a supportive online peer group. This is the position taken by trans activists as well as by much of the healthcare community. They feel it. They go to the internet, which is where everyone goes for information. They're affirmed, this is what it is, this is what you do, and they go, okay, now I can make that decision. The other explanation, which Littman has proposed, is that this recent rise in female late-onset gender dysphoria may be due to social contagion. It's, like everybody, the, the, it's, a, it's a thing, it's a movement. Many adolescents and young adults experience depression and anxiety, among other psychological disorders. This is especially true for young women. So basically, I'm feeling dysphoria. I don't feel good. I feel depressed. I feel concerned. My life is bad. You turn for information on the internet, which is, you you can't stop that. And there's this easy answer. You're in the wrong body. You need to switch. There's a whole community telling you to do it and how to do it. And saying, boom, it's catching on. So some saying people are transitioning because... It's positive, and the other saying, is it just a social contagion? Why? Be, especially because of the idea of a late onset. So, in many of these cases, the late one, the young person had no feelings of gender nonconformity until they had read about it online. So they weren't saying from the time they were three years old till they're, I just, my whole life felt wrong, this isn't right. It's all of a sudden, boom. They were seeking an understanding of their own anxiety and depression, right? I don't feel good. I'm looking for answers. They find articles and even support groups that encourage them to attribute their psychological problems to gender dysphoria. They then come out to their family who had never noticed any signs of gender nonconformity before that time. Littman refers to this as rapid onset dysphoria. So that's something that's happening. That doesn't account for everything, but I just want to say that's that's something they're finding. Boom, out of nowhere. So... Basically, they said, well, what? let's talk to the people who have detransitioned, who went that route and then came back, and let's see what they say. And I'm going to link this to Ezra. Don't worry. This is all going to link in. 
So they do a study of people who've, who've gone and come back. Since the majority of these detransitioning cases involve women who transition to men and are now seeking to return to their female birth gender, Littman asked whether there might be a link between detransitioning and rapid onset gender dysphoria, meaning that the people who just decided one day, are they more likely to come back? To explore this, Littman recruited 100 trans persons who had subsequently transitioned back to their birth sex. So this is 100 people who transitioned back. Here's their responses. Multiple reasons, but they say 60% reported they'd become more comfortable as identifying as their birth sex. 49% marked concerns about medical complications, particularly regarding hormone replacement therapy. Like, is this good for me? 38% noted that transitioning hadn't resolved their psychological issues. So they concluded that gender dysphoria wasn't the cause. 23% reported that experience of discrimination had made living as a trans person untenable. Another 23% understood that they had, in fact, been struggling with sexual orientation issues rather than gender dysphoria. So there was the host of responses. It says, although a quarter of the respondents had reluctantly detransitioned because of family pressure, difficulty finding a job, or other forms, so 25% said it, I was just forced back. The remaining three quarters, 75%, had found that gender dysphoria was a misdiagnosis of their psychological disorder. That wasn't the problem. Again, psychology today, this study done, last little part on that study. Recently, however, most clinicians have adopted an affirmative approach that accepts the patient's claim of gender dysphoria at face value and encourages a rapid transition to the desired sex. Oh, that's how you feel? Go. Also known as the informed consent model. This is the approach that has been championed by trans activists and has been adopted by the American Academy of Pediatrics and Planned Parenthood. Littman's data suggests that the increase in detransitioning cases may be due to not having thoroughly explored the roots of the reported gender dysphoria or the implications of transitioning. It's a complex issue. Some of you may be feeling those feelings. I'm not here to slam you or kick you or say, ha ha, that's not the point. The point is, who are we listening to? You feel some sense of dysphoria for whatever reason. I feel bad. Life is hard. My body feels weird. You turn to a community online, and there is a rapid community ready to say, here's the problem, you're in the wrong gender, switch. The doctors say, switch, and a whole bunch of people are saying, that wasn't my problem. And maybe medicines I took were harmful to my body. I read a whole other article in the Washington Post of a man who transitioned and said he's become a permanent medical patient. If he stops taking the pills, it'll give him cancer. And he, has to be con- he said, I basically made myself permanently relying on medicine. And he regrets it. So here, the whole point is, just like in Ezra's day, the people were looking for answers. How do I live? How do I cope? How do I get married? Who am I? And they went to places that provided them wrong answers. Will you worship this God? You invoke the dead. Oh, the only way to keep that evil away is to sacrifice your child. Like, well, then I guess that's what we do. Like, that's the, it's not obviously that straight of a line, but that's what happens. You turn to places with wrong information. The wrong information is couched in worship, and you lose spiritual sensibility. Isn't that what he says? Those who make the idols become like them. Today, who are you listening to? Where are you getting your information? It's not wrong to start with a Google search, but is that the truth? 
Is that community out there concerned about your long-term well-being? Or is it just a quick answer? You're looking, it's really looking for love in all the wrong places. So I just, if, if anyone has those feelings, just slow down. Slow down. It's not a, because it's not offering the best good for you. That's why I say let nothing come between you and God. It wasn't God just that I'm controlling you and I don't want you to marry these people and I'm going to be. It's like, no, you marry into that. You marry into a mess and you become spiritually dull and you end up walking away. Same with us. Where, where are we looking? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No one in an online chat room died for your sins. None of them. But Jesus did. Not one of those other deities that they worshipped died for their sins. But Jesus did. Not one of those other deities, not one person online has come back from the grave and defeated the power of death. But Jesus did. So when you're looking to any other place, you're not looking where love is and you're not looking where truth is. Jesus Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, live, remain, is abide. You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The people in that study followed what they thought was the right answer, and they said, it wasn't. That wasn't my problem. That wasn't what I needed. That didn't answer my questions. The dysphoria didn't go away. It created new problems. Are these medicines okay for me? My community's problematic. It wasn't the truth, and it did not set them free. And that's the whole thing God's after. I don't want you to mix in with other, these other things, not because I'm a control freak, but because they're lies, and they enslave you, and then you become spiritually desensitized and you stop hearing my voice. And that's what Jesus, he loves you. He gave himself for you. So let nothing come between you and God. No current reality. No internet search. No, you say, what does God say? Because he loved you and gave himself for you. So the, the question to think through is, well, what is coming between me and God? What is coming? Where what, is anything? Is there friendships? Is there things I'm doing? Is there things I'm watching? Is there things I'm partnering myself with as a business partner or a sports team? Are they pulling me? Are they suggesting things that aren't the truth? Can I compare it? Can I talk to someone? Can I look in Scripture? Even if you're feeling that sense, I feel something's wrong with my body, something's wrong with my sexual uh, identity, something, I want you to come talk to people here who love you and say, let's look together. I'm not going to slam the door in your face. Say, let's figure out the truth. And let's look at God who's guiding you to the truth. Not to what, out, not to what out, is out there that didn't die for your sins and didn't rise again and doesn't know every hair on your head and every word, one of your days that came to being. But that's who you want to seek. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is heavy. We're dealing with heavy stuff. So I just pray. I pray for people who feel a legitimate sense of they're in the wrong body. And they're trying to sort it out. I just pray they would sort it out in a loving community around your word. There's people who feel a sense of other reasons they don't feel right. They don't feel right in their body. They don't feel right in their workplace. They don't, they don't know what you want them to do. They have various other struggles and they need your truth. Would you help us to look only to you? Would you bring something to our mind, even right now, that might be creating a breach 
and our connection to you. Would you bring it to our mind? Would you give us the strength to act on it, to make a change, to rid it from our life, maybe even in an extreme way, to get rid of the lie and be filled with your truth? I just thank you that you love us. Let us trust in your word. It is sweet to trust in Jesus. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship. There's people ready to pray for you today. And in all seriousness if, you, seriousness, if you're feeling any of those feelings we've talked about, I want you to reach out. I want, you to let, I want people to walk with you. You're not alone. So let's stand and worship the Lord.